Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. And welcome to you. Welcome to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify. I'm your host, Lawrence Santoro. And yes, it's yo-yo weather again. Snow and freezing earlier in the week, and now in the 50s. Ah, well, all part of the mud-drenched horrors of spring. Yes, yes. But we are here, and all together now. So... Unwrap yourselves, find treats and a beverage, warm or chilled options tonight, and snuggle down with a chum, because tonight our tale-telling will essay two forms of monster. Other than to suggest you stop by the Tales to Terrify homepage at, where else, TalesToTerrify.com, and tap that donate button that will help keep us in treats, cat food, and scary electrons. Other than that, I've got just one item to bring to your attention tonight before we begin the telling of tales, which is our major function, of course, here in the dark. As you know, we recently lost our co-editor, Miss Chair Eves, lost her to her desire to spend more time with her family at all. And we wish her all the best with that. But we've now settled upon a new co-editor, and he is... Well, if I had a fanfare prepared, here's where it would sound. The new co-editor of Tales to Terrify is... And if this were a gangster or cowboy film from the 1930s, here's where a shot through the window would forever silence the voice that was about to spill the proverbial beans. But really, our new co-editor is Mr. Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen, well, you know Stephen. He's a perennial here in the Nook, a regular reader of tales. If you recall, a few weeks ago, after Stephen narrated Karen Warren's 
working for the god of the love of money, I mentioned that we'd soon have a surprise announcement about him. This is it. Stevens, the new co-editor, and he has hit the ground running and right atop Stoker season to thank God. Just a day or so after the announcement of the Bram Stoker Award nominations, he had corralled all six of the shortlisted authors so honored in the short fiction category and had parceled out the reading of their stories for us here in the Nook. A few have already come in. A bit of reiteration about Stephen. He is a customer service professional living in Northern Virginia. He has a degree in culinary arts and is an avid fan of fiction, the outdoors, and board games. In addition to all that, he works in information technology. He also recently began volunteering in prisons and enjoys hiking Virginia's Old Rag Mountain. The only new information I've gotten about him, other than his being co-editor at Tales to Terrify, is that he likes unflavored loose-leaf teas. Tonight, by way of celebrating Stephen's ascension to the exalted position of co-editor, I thought we'd let him read two tales. They are T.E. Growls in the Cave She Sang and The Reaver by India Drummond. While these two stories are utterly different, they both deal with monsters. One is a still-living monster. The other is a monster that exists hopefully only in the imagination, yet both are very real. You'll see what I mean. First up tonight is T.E. Growl. Mr. Growl is an author of dark fiction whose stories have appeared in anthologies that include Tales of Jack the Ripper, The Best of the Horror Society 2013, Dark Fusions Where Monsters Lurk, World War Cthulhu, The Dark Rites of Cthulhu, Suction Cup Dreams, an octopus anthology. I must get a hold of that one. Dead But Dreaming 2, The Aclinomicon, Urban Cthulhu, Nightmare Cities, Horror for the Holidays, Mark of the Beast, and Lively Bones, among others. In addition, his work has appeared in magazines and literary journals such as L.A. Weekly, The Foghorn, Lovecraft Ezine, Eschatology Journal, and others. He's got two chapbooks due out this year, published by Dunham Manor Press. They are The Mission and The Lost Aklo Stories. That's later in 2014. Before we listen, I, I just want to mention that In the Cave She Sang features a still-alive monster, one who still dwells in the belly of society's beast. And the story uses, uh, how to say this, explicit language and sharply disturbing ultra-graphic human goddess sexual congress imagery. Here, without more of me, is T.E. Growl's In the Cave She Sang.
Charlie couldn't quite remember how they ended up out here. Valley of the Dead. This was the high point of the lowest in the country, looking down on the dusty floor below, where the ribs of a dead tribe were laid bare. Embarrassing. The water didn't come here. Only bodies. Only bones. Charlie still tasted prison bars and felt the grunting bodies behind him. Many holding him down. Can't breathe. Didn't want to breathe. The smell. The stink of a screaming zoo where he was the forbidden fruit and everyone got a taste. But now he was on the other side. But still not out. Not yet. He needed to be set free and take the show on the road. Bring the circus to the masses. Spark his name in lights. The warm-up was over. Things got weird, and the howling began. He remembered sunset, beach boys, blisters, Topanga melting away under his feet, and Spawn rattling through the pictures, the heat. So Charlie headed up into the sun-wasted hills, and someone followed him. Many holding him down. Fuck him. People always followed him. They liked his eyes. He hated his eyes. Didn't trust them. They betrayed him. But his eyes made them follow, and they did. Last night it was a girl, scraggly little thing, nose always running. Smelled like armpits and menstrual blood. Not worth a fuck to anyone. Barely worth a fuck. At least that's what Tex said before having his turn. Gangly, sharp hips, bad teeth, worse skin. Nothing inside her anymore, clattering in oversized shoes from one late night to another. Courting calamity like a pony prince from childhood. Not worth a fuck. Not even to her mother. Not to her mother. Not to her father. All of her fathers. Scraggly little thing. Charlie hated these cunts, but they loved Charlie. Some of them. The ones that didn't count anyway. Fuck em. He did. But fuck em anyway. Thunder rolled at the back of the sky. The elders are angry. God is moving furniture. Mama always said, rain coming. Rain means life up in the high desert. Brief life allowed to stretch under the covers of clouds before being punched in the gut in broad daylight. A cruel tease before the bullet. The last drag before the gunshot. In the low desert, rain also means death. Flash floods, water screaming over land that forgot it even existed washing away sand and skulls and rock and grime. Rain coming. High, low, all the same. God is moving furniture. Charlie trudged up the embankment, his crumbling footfalls echoing in his ears. In the left pocket of his tattered fatigues was a knot of wise cactus that he'd take later, once he found a spot. In his right pocket were three sacred worms, pickled in Aztec magic, floating in a dirty baby food jar provisions for the journey. He needed food for his brain, his third eye, not the body. The body was filthy, scarred with shit and unwanted fingerprints, maggot food, let it rot with the rest of them. He'd fly above on black wings of hate, raining down death like a blitzkrieg on the Prussian countryside. God damn them all. God damn him. He spun off the lid and popped a worm. Charlie was hungry, Feed the beast, lest it eat itself. Thunder stomped the sky. Charlie had to get high, higher. He needed to get above the world and look down at his kingdom, if only to decide if it was worth saving. He needed to know what to do, the next step. 
Everything was frozen right now, even in the desert draping the valley of the dead, his valley where he had moved his family to safety, away from the ranch and the zoo and the pigs and the fear. Charlie needed to find his song. The music inside him was dead. He dug the desert and its poisonous protectors, but found nothing but worn-out hills and twisted blank. No music, frozen, stuck in shit, clogged. Charlie needed to know what to do, especially now. It all hung by a thread. Weave or cut, weave or cut, loom or knife. He had both. He was on Olympus, and he had tools. The song, where was the goddamn song? This was the last day of the year-long summer of love, the year of napalm death, the year of the dead preacher. Charlie wanted to see where next year would go. He'd name it. He had that power. But what would he name it? Entertain such dark and giddy thoughts, burning cities, towers of distended bodies, devouring freshly cut mud babies while his followers drank and sang and howled and fucked in front of a roaring fire of severed limbs, stacking torsos like cordwood into rotting bunkers for the final end. Dark deeds. Such delicious dark deeds. They thrilled Charlie, kept him going, even when he found himself wanting to lick the inside of a shotgun barrel. Charlie paused, wondering if this was the answer. Someday, maybe it would be. But not today, not yet. He had to be crowned first. Charlie sat down. He needed to think. He needed to see out into the wisdom... He tried to hum, but only choked. Take a load off, Charlie. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. Something scuttled over his boot. He looked down. A dung beetle had capsized in the sand. Charlie picked it up and stared at it. Such a powerful little monster, all legs and sharpness and thick shell. His would own the world someday after Charlie had his way with it. But what would he do? How would he take light from the world and make it feel what he felt? The beetle dug his spiky feet into Charlie's palm. Charlie felt nothing. The bug had spirit. Beetle. He smashed the protesting bug in his hands and licked the crunchy greenish slime. Beetle. A sound came above him. Charlie pushed his hair back and cocked his pounding ear to the ridge above. It came again like a crackled parting of dying lips and the intake of a death rattle. He looked behind him, noticing an outcropping a hundred yards up the incline. A warm, sickly sweet wind, a cancerous exhale, filtered down to him, twisted inside a strange melody, a tinkling sound, as if from a dusting of glass snowflakes. The cold. Ohio. Charlie popped another worm. He stood up and turned around, steadying himself, suddenly feeling as if he was standing on a precipice. He looked down and saw that his boots were firmly on the sandy ground, but he couldn't help feeling like he was falling. Where was that cactus bud? Had he already eaten it? His stomach hurt. Must have. Charlie clambered up the steep hillside, slipping briefly, clawing the left side of his body. Rocks cut ribs. He didn't mind. Pain meant he was still breathing. He rose again and continued up the mountain, the valley of the dead waiting beneath him, the sheathed and loaded shotgun bumping at his back. Charlie pulled himself up onto an outcropping of rock and stared up at the ridge, at the apex of an eroded draw where an oblong cave loomed before him. This wasn't one of the Shoshone caves that dotted the low country below. No savage hand had carved this opening. 
This seemed almost organic, as if the land itself had opened its legs and exposed its privates. How did he not see this before? It was beautiful. It was horrible. The moan escaped the cave. The sound of pleasure, slow death, giving up the ghost, hissing into the outside world from a killing floor spiced with the dank of a Moroccan whorehouse, the scent of sex and rot. The opening loomed in front of him, waiting. Inhale. Hold. Charlie was horrified. He felt small, brought low, brought low, like an orphan sold for a pitcher of beer. The castaway crackerjack passed around at Boys Town, the fuck toy of a million screaming prison cells, an easy trick standing in front of his mother's unwilling twat. They liked his eyes. He hated his eyes. Exhale. Charlie fell to his knees, terrified. He hated caves, small spaces, echoes where the truth screamed back, but he knew what he must do, penetrate, white man's burden. He reached into his pocket for the cactus. It was gone. His bones hurt. He needed to find his song. Where was it? Was that a melody he heard coming from within? Siren song? That melody. Stealing his spine, he stood up as the first thick, greasy raindrop hit him square on the forehead boring a hole into his skull. He hadn't felt the rain in years, that curious moisture, cold and viscous, like it came from somewhere else. It's cold in space, they say. Another drop hit him, then another, beating down like taps, a drum roll. These were thick, angry drops. The wrath, the deluge was beginning. Charlie was high, unprotected. He needed shelter, build his ark, toss the animals over the side, eat the fucking rich. The rain wanted him, Wanted to wash him clean. Fuck that. He'd die dirty. Feeling the sand underneath his feet began to seep away. Charlie closed his eyes and plunged into the cave, disappearing into the darkness. Warmth. Stink. Taste of the familiar. Charlie kept his eyes shut a few moments, listening for something. Anything. He wasn't ready, but there it was. That song coming from down deep. He opened his eyes and adjusted. The cavity was a hollowed-out spiral carved from below. Corkscrew, single helix, carved from below. The rain screamed at him from outside, angry that it lost one. The desert melted, and Charlie finally felt safe. He leaned against the clammy wall. He had to stay there, at least for a while. This was his spot, he was certain. Caves weren't so bad. Safe, empty, full of secrets. Music. That melody. This was his spot. Caveman, Neanderthal man, Cro-Magnon man. Man, that was the life. He'd fucking club somebody, make a sport of it, like counting coop, but with a flourish. Old Indian club, with that smooth ball on the end. Caving in skulls to see the creamy filling. Milky Way. Charlie was hungry. He wanted to kill a man. The melody coalesced into words, coming from somewhere deep. Charlie turned slowly, looking down into the inkwell shaft that seemed to sink forever, forever under the desert. A voice sang to him, trying to teach him a new tune. He didn't see her, didn't see anyone. He just saw himself. Mirrored faces looking back at him, and now he looked out of the cave, watching the desert dissolve in the rain, out or in, sing or die. The song got louder. He couldn't make out the words, but they still spoke to him. He felt his brain start to itch. A creeping notion was prodding, poking, looking for a way in. 
invitations, consecrations, glimpses of alien hellscapes swirling around an event horizon a billion miles across. Charlie was scared. He never liked caves. He turned to head out when a sudden surge of icy water and desert death flushed him down deep into the gulping darkness. Charlie would die in a cave. Charlie spun, knocking against a spiny ribbed surface as he twisted down against the grain. Down, down, spinning, spun. He couldn't breathe. He'd drown. He was drowning already, eyes open, looking out into the cobalt nothing. Charlie Tuna eaten by the mountain gods. His lungs were on fire inside, the thundering slush stabbing him from the inside, mocking his sad, wasted life. Sorry, Charlie. We'll see you again on the other side, stuck inside a ball of shit. Mocked by all and remembered by none, Charlie closed his eyes. He didn't want to see what was coming. Then he heard the song again, heard her. She told him to wait, to be strong. Charlie finally understood. He gritted his teeth. He'd wait, even as the fire inside was consuming him. Burn the witch, sell the bones, wait. Just as he felt his mouth opening to suck in his last empty breath, Charlie shot from the tunnel and landed heavily on a warm, hot surface. Smooth skillet, it burned his cold, wet skin. That's how he knew he was alive. Drenched, withered, Charlie spit up that which sought to kill him. All that came out was black, purging, clearing up room. The song wasn't here. His ears ached for it and reached out around him, searching for it. All he found was a steady hiss, a rattle, like dead skin rubbing against itself. The air creaked, heaved, moaned. He looked up, his long hair covering his eyes. He was naked. The water took his cover. He pushed aside his bangs, finding a floor paved in onyx streaked with flowing veins of purple, red, and gold. After what seemed like an eternity, Charlie raised his quivering head and looked around the dank, dimly lit cavern. Inky, humid space stretched to eternity on three sides, pulled into light by rings of glowing phosphorescence etched in the ribs of a dead leviathan. Massive stalagmites rose from the floor. No, they were carved. Glyphs, ciphers, etched blasphemies adorning topless pillars of colossal bulk and impossible circumference. Standing mute sentry below the roof of the cavern, where stalactites the size of skyscrapers hung down from the ceiling a thousand feet above, like blackened icicles of an endless mausoleum. From honeycombed openings and rising and falling columns, shadows, shapes, flitted and scuttled, drones, worker things moving unsteadily on long, spindly appendages, nervous bickering. The walls beyond were dotted by other openings, leading to other caves in other parts of the earth waiting. This was a hive, birthed in an alien womb of nameless and forgotten horror, a secret city buried deep within the molten heart of the earth. He choked, couldn't breathe, drowning in air. The heat was melting his feet, groaning stone, the grinding of conquered time, the killing floor, black, 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 God turned away, left his furniture, up and moved, Charlie crumpled on dead legs, fell backwards. He wasn't alive. He was in hell. It was all true, goddammit. Charlie stared at the ceiling, hoping an icicle would detach and fall, ending this eternal nightmare newly glimpsed. Just like on the snowy porch in Ohio, 
just as everything was starting to freeze. Icicle, icicle, please fall, the end, I beg of you. Now, Charlie screamed, now! Nothing, he was alone, as always. A creaking issued from the black above as the formation of stalactites began to twitch, then slowly writhe like rubbery tentacles dripping with a dying bloom of delicate petals. Their parting revealed a huge fleshy knot waiting in the darkness, sliced by innumerable slits, clicking and pursing vaginas, a seething vortex chattering around the toothy maw of a monstrous lamprey that opened wide. From inside the gaping mouth, the bony brow of an octopod nightmare emerged, stretched and loomed into the cavern, covered in skin mottled by shattered fractals in the scat of drained nebulae. Twin fissures of yellow eyes parted from the newly birthed head and stared down at Charlie. Inside the clutch of tentacles, teeth, sucking spirals, a mouth, goddamn the mouth. It roared, the air shuddered, insanity dimmed. Tears burned, washing away the knot aloud. Blood clotted his heart with prison pudding. His soul shriveled. This shouldn't be, couldn't. He clawed at his eyes. He'd face hell as a blind man. The roar ended. Silence, deafening in its pregnant measure. Let this be over. Please, God. Charlie opened his eyes, tears mixed with blood. The monster was gone, but the sting remained. He sat up, quaking, poisoned, dope-sick. Then he saw her. Standing in front of Charlie, quivering nakedness, was a woman draped in a shimmering veil of quicksilver serpents. A woman, yes, but like no other ever seen by waking human eyes, hideous and haughty in her impossible beauty. Angular features, chiseled cheekbones, lush, damning lips, fathomless, opaque eyes like a swirling sea of pearls without black, hair the color of starless space draping down a porcelain back, Framed by harem hips and delicate legs, Athena in marble, Isis in flesh, wild, cold, otherworldly, but unnervingly familiar like an Egyptian death mask come alive. Everything in the cavern, even the odd light, seemed to bend in her direction, to her gravity, her majesty. The suggestion of her voice danced in his mind in a strange careening jag. I see you, she hissed noxiously, as I have seen you before. Charlie felt like rending his own flesh, spooning out his eardrums. He wasn't supposed to hear this, hear her. I see you always, she continued, as I have been here before you and will remain here after, even past the end. Charlie wanted to fall to his knees, kiss her tiny feet, and grovel in supplication to this impossible presence. But he couldn't. He was stone. She was all. Ice in the fire. He couldn't look at her. He didn't dare. It was too much. Looking into the sun. Looking at the mother of all that was and will ever be. Mother, please don't. Kill me instead. She regarded Charlie's unmoving stare curiously, as if expecting a different reaction. Eyes narrowed. A decision was made. Then he knew her. As she let it be known. This was an avatar of Kasagtha, the taker of tongues, slithering goddess of a billion untold eons, serpent priestess of a trillion hidden stars, born of dark matter at the seething center of a reality not our own, 
consort of the great priest. She roamed the outer world before time was born, birthing cosmic death on beds of crushed galaxies, banished from the top world after the fourth great war. She now ruled from below, the muse of pre-human murder and violence untold. Rise, she bade him in a voice that lilted and boomed throughout this sprawling chamber, challenging the air. Rise and face the queen of the buried chaos. Fighting the pull of the ground, Charlie struggled to his feet, painfully straightening his battered human husk. I know what you want. Her voice cooed from smirking lips as she twisted around him at the head of thousand serpents, examining him from every angle at once, seeping inside him, lapping at his soul. She carved deep, tasted his pain, and savored the intent. Many have come, few have gone. She was once again in front of him. I will have you, she said as the swimming snakes parted, showing her ripe naked body beneath, rounded bosom, squirming cuttlefish between her legs. Will you have me? She asked imperiously, arching a brow. Charlie worked his mouth, but nothing was inside. Everything was laid bare. To have me is to give up everything. It is to learn my song. Will you have me? She asked again, coquettishly, as she held out her arms. Yes, Charlie stammered, finally finding human speech through the animalistic haze of primal lust igniting his blood. Then take me. His pupils dilated. Humanity was gone. Animal. Fucking savage. He could smell the strange perfume of her insides. Would starve without them. Charlie grabbed the goddess-made flesh, spun her around, found her moist, fiery opening, and fucked her like a dog, like a caveman, inside of her. With each thrust, he felt himself slipping away, walking down the seven hundred steps into roiling insanity and pre-human lust. Fuck. Fucking. The slapping of temporary flesh against immortal shell. Flaming sword and vat of oil. He dripped sweat and blood over her back, lost in the patterns that veined her translucent skin. He was leaving. He'd never come back. He'd never die. The ageless snake goddess looked back at him over her shoulder. A smile of ecstasy and triumph licked across her mouth. I will teach you, she told him. I will teach you to sing. And so she did. As the song began again and they were joined as one, he was filled up by it as he filled her. His mind lit up taking it all in as she took him inside. She promised Charlie many things, promised Charlie everything. This was her secret city, a safe place, and she'd give it to him, to his family, if he gave her everything else. He would, goddammit, he'd tear down the heavens for her. He sucked the song deep until he thought his brain would burst, but it couldn't kill him now, nothing could. His eyes bulged, he came, he fell. The floor greeted him like a pillow as he sank into the mass of a million intertwined serpents. One of them opened its mouth, swallowing him whole, and dove into the mass of its brethren. A skittering cackle echoed off the cavern, which returned to its static resolve. Stiff, unmoving, deserted columns and black stone icicles, flavored with the melody, the song that died away with the last of the fading light. The top world will fall, the top world will fall. Hail the coming of the serpent. Charlie was inside the ribbed conduit again, spinning up from the perfumed guts of the beautiful beast, back into the cursed light where he would walk anew, carved from below, 
Of course it was. Below is where she lives, for now. He wasn't afraid. He wouldn't drown. He couldn't breathe the bluish amniotic fluid that coursed through his heaving lungs. He was the consort of a goddess. Who could stop him now? He closed his eyes and smiled. Charlie shot from the aperture in the hillside and landed on one bowed knee. He spit, rose, then stood erect. Monkey man, no more. New prodigy, he was. Naked body, anointed with the cerulean gore of ancient gods, a crown of twilight vipers ringing in his head. A dread tune on his lips. Entered an ape. Emerged a god. Steam billowed from his lungs. Fire-breathing dragon. Fucking monster. The valley of death was frozen, waiting. Tiny white icicles hung from a gnarled tree. How odd they looked. He'd burn them all down, blacken them for good. It was time. Charlie glided down the mountain as the opening closed behind him. He found his mistress. He found the secret city. The family couldn't go back to spawn. This was where they'd waited out once they lit the spark. He had journeyed into the desert as Jesus to find something older than time, where he and his would listen to the thundering apocalypse from the safety of the womb. And now he had the secret and the spot. He had the next step. He had the song, which played out on his lips and twirled inside his soul. Double helix, carved from below. He had such things to tell the family on the last day of the year of death. It was the eve of 69, and he had his song to sing. He smiled and hummed. The time had come. War begins. Let it be. Thank you, T.E., for letting us hear that. And thank you, John, Paul, George, and Ringo, for singing us out. A few more words, 44 of them to be precise. Currently, T.E. Grau serves as fiction editor of Strange Aeons magazine. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife and daughter and can be found in the ether at Cosmic Comic Con for which I will put the link on the Tales to Terrify homepage. Next, we have another monster. This time he is India Drummond's creature, the Reaver. India says she knew from age nine that writing would be her passion since then. She How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com allows that she has discovered many more, but none quite so fulfilling as creating a world, a character, a moment, and watching those elements evolve into something complex and compelling. She's lived in three countries and four American states, is a dual British and American citizen, and while she currently lives at the base of the Scottish Highlands in a village so small, she says its main attraction is a red phone box, in other words, paradise. She currently is on sabbatical in Bologna, Italy, where she writes, eats, walks, shops, and enjoys the sunshine. But enough. Here is India Drummond's The Reaver. Krell went to his private gallery to think. He walked among the delicate hovering globes and tapped the thin glass with an extended claw. The souls within shimmered as a perfect tone echoed off the stone walls. Each orb would produce a different note, dependent not on its shell, but the timber of the human life within. As he stood in the center of the chamber, he recalled the taking of each one. The only pleasure that exceeded visiting his collection was expanding it by harvesting new human ore. The newest of his collection still struggled within their confinement. He stroked the cool glass with the dark green flesh of his palm and heard the magical echo of two voices. A smile played across his gnarled lips. When he had coaxed the female's essence from her body, another tiny flicker came with it. She'd been with child. The challenge had delighted him how to encase two as one, and yet still keep the casing thin and the sound clear. It had been tried before, always with disastrous outcomes. But no two souls were as intimately connected as a mother and child, and his triumphant artistry had stunned everyone who'd seen it. They swirled together, blending their blue and golden light, then flew apart as though dancing. It filled him with pure delight. He had considered giving this one to the clan war chief, but found he could not part with the pair. His thoughts of the war chief reminded Krell of the summons he'd received. The hour had come to attend his patron. He turned towards the door, bracing himself for the meeting ahead. 
His heavy boots thudded against the stone floor as he strode with purpose to the stairwell. His thoughts lingered on his collection, distracting him to the point of obsession. He nearly collided with his daughter at the top of the stairs. Krell's heart swelled with pride at how beautiful Rygret had become. Her black hair hung over her shoulder in a braid that reached her waist, making her the spitting image of her mother. Krell thought of his lost mate often since her death in the Battle of Kurtol six years before. Father, Rygret said, I want to bring my new pet to live in my rooms, but Hyug won't allow it in the house without your consent. Krell scowled. Another? But what about Crush? Rygret met his eyes fiercely. My wolf died nearly a year ago, father. I told you. The new pet needs more attention. It gets bored tied up outside all day. A pang of remorse shot through him. He neglected Rygret since her mother died, but his work had helped fill the gap left by his wife's death. His collection had grown to number in the hundreds. If he sold it, he could retire in comfort and buy his daughter a legion of her own bonded warriors, but he knew he couldn't part with any of his creations. He found it difficult enough to offer the required occasional tribute to the war chief. So I'll tell Hyug it's all right with you? Rygret said, bringing him back to the moment. Why would he say no? Hyug is our servant, not you his. She shrugged. He worried the noise might disturb you. The creature is not fully trained and it tends to howl at night, but I think having it inside will help. I must attend the war chief, Krell said absently. So I have your permission then. A statement, not a question. Yes, my heart. Krell said and started to go, but paused at the archway leading out. Keep it on a leash until it's domesticated. He shuddered as he imagined the wolf, or perhaps a were-cat cub, clambering around in his gallery. Thank you, father, she called as he walked away. The conversation was forgotten within moments, and he considered the meeting ahead. The war chief possessed ten of Krell's orbs, not his finest. Those Krell kept for himself. None could match his rate of success or the complexity he achieved in his designs. Reavers were not the only artists of their race, but they were the most sought after. The powerful, wanted soul orbs decorating their strongholds, reminding visitors not only of their wealth, but of their hand in the subjugation of the indigenous humans. Krell climbed the long stone staircase that led into the war chief's stronghold. Scarred and battle-worn warriors stood guard at intervals their marred and tangled faces showing that the war chief's legion was one to be feared above all others. The audience chamber had an immense fire burning in the center of its dome-shaped space. The flames burned blue, fueled by magic. At the back of the room, the war chief sat on a raised crescent-shaped dais, looking glorious in full battle armor with his black hair pulled into a top knot. His face broke into a snarling grin when Krell stepped forward. "'You there!' he said with an excitement that made Krell wary. The reaver followed the path around the fire and approached the iron throne. He knelt, as was customary in such a formal setting. War chief, he said with a fist over his heart. Come, the war chief replied. Stand beside me. Krell dared not hesitate. He rose and stood to the war chief's left and slightly behind the throne. How may I serve you this day, he growled. Instead of answering, the war chief bellowed, Bring the prisoner! 
His voice echoed in the huge chamber, and the magical fire leapt and crackled in response. A grated wooden door on the left side of the chamber groaned as two warriors worked a crank and chain to draw it open. It led to the dungeons many floors below, in the base of the stronghold. A female warrior emerged from behind the rising portcullis. She dragged a small human behind her by one leg. It wore with a filthy satin gown, and its tangled chestnut hair was adorned with sagging ribbons. Its face was purple with bruises, and dried blood caked around its mouth. The war chief roared. His dark eyes flashed as he extended a claw towards the guard. I told you to keep it alive! The warrior dropped the human's leg and then prodded it none too gently with a toe. Get up! she hissed. When the prisoner didn't move, her green skin flushed darkly. It's unconscious. The humans are not strong. She strode back towards the iron grate and passed through it, returning moments later with a bucket of foul water. Krell couldn't take his eyes off the human. He must have been called for a commission. In the past, he'd always chosen the subject for his art. Every human soul had a different quality. Some spoke to his sense of beauty. Some did not. The water splashed all the way to the bottom of the dais. The human choked and spluttered, and the guard grabbed its hair, forcing it to kneel on all fours with its head up. See? the guard said. It breathes. The war chief turned to Krell, his eyes shining. I want the largest globe you've ever done. Can you add etching to the glass without ruining the tone? I want it suspended here. He pointed a gnarled finger towards the center of the room, above the fire. Krell stared at the human, entranced, and inched down the stone steps. A glaze on the glass will give a better effect than etching, he murmured absently. The soul of a princess, the war chief barked a laugh. It was captured in Gitten Marsh, a rare find, wouldn't you say? It will be like a beautiful shining jewel, yet it will strike fear in their rebellious hearts. How long will the process take? The human shook. Whether from fear or shock, Krell didn't know. Stand it up, he said to the guard as he closed the last few steps towards the pair. No human stands before the war chief, the guard growled. Krell glanced over his shoulder at his patron. The time required depends how complex its strands are. I need to examine it. Do as the reaver wishes, the war chief said, leaning forward on his iron throne, watching eagerly as the guard lifted the young human to its feet. Krell began his inspection. With a ceremonial knife he kept on his belt, he cut away the filthy fabric wrapped around it, bearing the skin down to its navel. The human trembled but held itself as still as it could as long as the blade was next to its pink flesh. Krell slipped the knife back into its sheath. Something wet hit his face. He looked up in disbelief. The thing had spit in his face. It began a stream of the high-pitched babble language the primitive creature spoke. Its legs flailed forward, tiny kicks landing on Krell's hardened muscles like the slaps of an infant. Restrain it, he said. Does it need to be conscious? The guard said, sounding hopeful. Krell shook his head. Just alive. The guard delivered a heavy blow to the side of the princess's head, and its movement stopped immediately. Green hands as hard as steel held the human upright while Krell continued his examination. He retrieved a thin glass bar from his belt pouch. He had created the divining rod with the same enchantment he would use to make the orb. 
Running it along the path from the chest bone down to the navel, he began to delve, looking for the seat of the human soul. The strand presented itself quickly. There was only one. Krell shook his head with disappointment. The creature's soul was simple, plain, uninteresting. Worse than that, it was unworthy. He sighed. There is a problem, the war chief asked. I do not think this subject will yield an adornment worthy of your hall. The war chief's fist banged against the arm of his throne. It is a princess. It is adored above all other humans. It is my prize, he shouted. It is ugly, Krell said, looking deeper, hoping against hope his first inspection would have proved wrong. Of course it is ugly, the war chief grumbled. It is human. It's the soul orb I want. He paused. Eight thousand crescents. Krell glanced up. Eight thousand was ten times more than he'd been paid for his best piece. He could see the war chief was determined to have his way. Krell would do it. He could extract and preserve such a simple soul in less than an hour, but he had to find a way to craft it into a piece worthy of the clan leader. I need four days, he said, looking at the frail pink creature in front of him. Good! The war chief bellowed a laugh. Take the human away to my reaver's work chamber. To Krell, he added in a low voice, A delegation from the Grum clan will be here in three days. I want the orb ready before they arrive. His eyes glowed yellow and his teeth bared into a menacing smile. For eight thousand crescents, I expect miracles. Krell thumped his fist to his chest and lowered his eyes with respect, but his thoughts were tortured and dark. He didn't know how he could deliver what was required, but he had no choice. The last one to disappoint the clan leader ended up hanging on a row of spikes while ravens picked at his body for the five days it took him to die. The guard dragged the human behind Krell, and they walked together in silence to his workshop in the lower floor of his home. The guard waited until Krell strapped the subject to a stone table in the center of the room before taking her leave. Krell stared at the tangled mess of humanity and sighed. His divining rod in hand, he ran it over the princess's body again, looking at the pathetic, simple, muddy soul. He didn't know where to begin. A screech like that of a demon harpy startled him out of his reverie. It came from above, Rygret. Krell left the unconscious human and ran up the stairs. His daughter was the only thing that kept him from becoming completely lost in his own mind. If anything happened to her... The thought was lost as soon as he got to her chamber door. In the corridor stood Rygret, holding a chain. At the end of the chain was a collared, naked, well-muscled human female. Rygret had a pointed stick in her right hand and the leash in her left. The human had several small gashes and thin welts on its back and thighs, and it paced back and forth like a caged panther. "'What in the name of Brogdell are you doing?' Krell roared. "'This is my new pet, remember, father?' We talked about it earlier, Rygret said with a tone seemingly full of patience. A human? Krell stood stunned. This was worse than a werecat cub. But what's wrong with another wolf? Father, I'm not twelve anymore. Humans are more intelligent than wolves. Bryshak has one that can dance, but mine will be even better. Watch. 
She put the stick in a loop at her waist and clapped her hands. The human's attention snapped to her immediately. Up, she said sharply. The human eyed her warily, but stood upright. Good, now flip. Rygret gave a quick-handed signal. It hesitated only a second before leaning forward and touching the ground. Krell stared in amazement as it shifted its balance and put its feet in the air. It kept its balance admirably for a moment before toppling back to an upright position. It looked at Rygret hopefully, and she smiled and petted it affectionately. It took me four weeks to get it to do that, she said with pride. The sweet moment was ruined, however, when the human lunged for Rygret's training stick. Fortunately, she got the creature under control with a sharp yank on the leash and a hiss. I still have a lot of work to do, she said apologetically. But father, it's wonderful, so smart and adaptable. It's a spirited beast, but we have a connection. I can feel it. It just needs more time. Now that I have it inside with me, I'm sure our progress will be even more remarkable. It'll be fit to entertain a war chief by winter. Krell had heard of human pets, but the idea turned his stomach. He would sooner invite a troll to dinner. But they're dangerous, he said. I know. Regret looked delighted. Krell had to admit her determination made him proud. Suddenly Krell realized his divining rod was thrumming. He pointed it at Rygret's pet. The sensation intensified. What is it? Rygret asked. Hold it still. Rygret gave another yank to the chain and said, Up! As before, it stood still, shoulders back and chin up. Krell admired how well she handled the creature but his thoughts for his daughter disappeared when he glanced the pet's skin with the divining rod. The soul practically leapt out at him, dancing and shining with furious light. It had at least a dozen soul strands, all varying shades of greens and pinks, wide ribbons of shimmering beauty. This, he lamented, was a soul worthy of the clan chief, not the festering sludge down in his workroom. I want it, Krell said. What? The war chief has commissioned a new piece, but the subject he gave me to work with is inadequate, ugly. This one's soul, though, is magnificent, the most beautiful I've seen in my life. Rygret loosened her grip a little in her shock, and the pet began to fight again. It took her a moment to regain control. If I give you its soul, will it live? You would have to feed it, clean it, and it would not speak, but if you cared for it, it would live. Would it... Be trainable? No, Krell said. He knew from experience it would be little more than a shell, and although tempted, he would not lie to his daughter. No, she said. It is mine. I chose her for her spirit. I've slaved over her for months. It's the best pet I've ever had. If I please the war chief, we will receive eight thousand crescents. I can buy you another one. I can buy you ten pets as strong as this one. How do you know it's not her soul that makes it special? You said yourself it was the most beautiful you'd ever seen. You wouldn't be able to replace that. And all my work. Father, please. Rygret, he said firmly. I must take its soul for this commission. Come, I'll show you. He led his daughter down to his workshop, the pet in tow behind her. The creature's eyes widened when it saw the princess strapped to the table, and it began to yelp. Control that thing. There's delicate equipment in here, Krell scolded. 
He stood over the princess, and with his divining rod tapped the seat of its soul, intoning a well-practiced enchantment. He teased the ugly brown strand upward and let his magic do its work. A crystal casing formed, and he coaxed the mire toward it, taking his time with his art, as he always did, even though he knew the subject was unfit. The resulting glass was small and thick, and the soul measured barely the size of the human's eye. Krell had seen horse droppings more pleasing to look at. He spoke the words to suspend it in the air, but sent it flying to an upper corner of the workroom. He couldn't even want to look at it. Rygret frowned. Can you not fix the orb? She kept her pet tightly restrained, but it seemed transfixed and horrified at what it saw. Water ran from its eyes, and it made a strangled choking sound. Krell chuckled. No, they are what they are. He untied the straps and shoved the princess's empty body to the floor. It wouldn't fight any more. Put your pet on the table. Father, please, no. Let me just show you, he said patiently. You promise you won't take the soul? He paused and nodded reluctantly. Once you see, you'll understand. The pet struggled fiercely, panicking the moment it recognized what they planned to do. Krell helped Rygret when he saw that she could not control it in its current state. She held it while he strapped it down. Watch this, Krell said. Because of the brilliance of the soul strand, he had little difficulty finding its root. He'd never had that problem before. It resisted him, and when he pulled, it fought him. Doubling his efforts, he chanted loudly and finally subdued it. He tugged the strands upwards, as he had with the princesses. It shone a brilliant gold. Then Krell released it and touched a second strand that was intimately connected to the first. It was a bright rose color. Together, the two were like a fiery sunrise. I see a dozen such strands, Rygret each more beautiful than the last. I must have it for the war chief. The war chief has many soul orbs. Krell grew impatient. You want me to give him that one? He thrust his green finger towards the muddy orb in the corner. My guts would decorate the floor before I could say a word. That, he said, indicating the pet, is the soul of a princess. You have a large collection. Give him one of yours. He'd never know the difference. He would know, Rygret. How? Krell glanced up angrily. How could Rygret not see the beauty in front of her? I would know. He pointed to the writhing form on his table. This is a soul worthy of our clan leader. Do you not believe him worthy of honor? And do you not consider your promise to me worthy of honor? I said I would look, and I did. Yes, the soul is beautiful, but it is more beautiful within the creature. I will make her the envy of all. She is fierce, and she is mine. Find another for the war chief. There is no other, Krell said, his eyes transfixed on the dancing wisps emanating from the pet. This is the one I must have. Father, no, you promised. Krell ignored his daughter, beginning his work. He chanted, and the soul strands rose up, first one, then another. They swirled in the air in front of him. You lied to me, you cared nothing for me, and you never have. Rygret screamed at him, but he was deaf to her. This is the only thing I've ever asked for, the only joy in my life, and you would take it from me? 
She beat her green fists against him, but he barely noticed. Couldn't she see? He would make it up to her. He would buy her that legion. But the war chief must have a worthy soul. I will never forgive you! Ragret cried, finally spent and exhausted. Krell's mind barely registered even the sound of the slamming door. For two days he worked. He could not stop to eat or rest, or the intricate configuration of filaments would be unwoven. The glass-like enchantment swelled as he filled it from the pet's body until it was wider than his shoulders, any larger and he would not be able to fit it through the door. He continued working the magic over the slack-jawed and drooling body on the table. It moaned, but he ignored it. Hyug always cleaned up after Krell's work. The servant would do the kind thing and cut the human's throats before dumping the fleshy waste. Krell saw no reason to be cruel. This, Krell knew, would be his masterpiece, the work by which all other reavers would be judged. He spoke the final words and watched the gold, red, and blue filaments flying inside their glassy home. Unlike any other work he'd completed before, this was like molten fire, like the birth of a universe. No adornments or glaze was required. It was breathtaking to behold. He cast the enchantment to hold the globe in the air and stepped around his table. He had no idea what time of day or night it was, nor did he care. The war chief would not mind being interrupted for this. Propelling it ahead of him through the air as he walked, Krell made his way up into the house and down to the streets. Pride swelled as he heard the gasps from the few passerby. The word must have gone out ahead of him, but he didn't hurry. He kept his eye on the orb and others formed a procession with him, escorting him to the stronghold's audience chamber. His growing exhaustion loomed as he placed it high above the fire, and a murmur spread all around him. There must have been a crowd of at least a hundred there now. Only once the peace was mounted in place of honor did Krell meet the eyes of the war chief. The clan leader stood and inclined his head to Krell, slowly placing his fist over his heart. I told you it would be magnificent, he said, and the crowd cheered. There would be a feast in his honor, he vaguely heard the clan leader proclaim. Now that he'd released the orb, the price of such magic took its toll, and Krell staggered back. Someone, he wasn't certain who, escorted him away from the stronghold and to his own front door. He was in a daze, tired but happy and so proud. Only the moment of Rygret's birth had ever made him feel so complete. She was his heart, as he often told her. He reflected that he would have to find a way to make this up to her. He should speak to her now before he did anything else. He owed her at least that. Thiag met him in the entryway. Where's Rygret? Krell said. I need to talk to her right away. Krell, Thiag began. She left two days ago. I came to your workshop and told you. Remember? What? Krell thought back. Of course he didn't remember. Everyone knew he couldn't think about anything else while he was working. She left for the homelands. She said to tell you she was going to live with your wife's sister until she got settled. Krell looked up sharply. She's gone. Hayug looked down. The convoy she traveled with was attacked by a wild pack of humans, hundreds of them, I was told she fought bravely. He hesitated, his voice strangely quiet. They brought her back this morning. For a moment, hope threatened to break through. Where is she? Krell, you don't want to see her like this. 
He stood in respectful silence a moment before adding, Don't worry about the details. I'll arrange the rites. She will have a magnificent procession into the afterlife. Krell staggered away, not hearing anything more. My beautiful Rygret, he wailed. With tumbling steps, he made his way down to his private gallery, which was situated just across from his workroom. The many orbs around him vibrated, as though shaking with the grief that washed over him. Why? Why his Rygret? Over a human? Was his crime so severe that he deserved to lose his only child? Yes, he'd wronged her, but he could have made it up to her if only she'd given him the chance. She told him many times he was obsessed with his work, but it was only because she couldn't see what he did. If only she'd see his point of view for once. He sank to the ground, sitting on the cold stone, surrounded by his creations. My heart, he said to the air. Rygret, my heart is gone. He slumped and something within him broke. His race did not have the same kind of soul humans did. They were not so simple as the weak pink creatures. They could not be confined to an orb of conjured glass to decorate the walls of a conquering race. Krell's last words were an enchantment. Like a human without a soul, one of his kind without a heart could have no true life. He went slack. The soul orbs vibrated even harder, and the most delicate ones shattered instantly. A spray of color churned before scattering in an invisible wind. The glass of the larger ones exploded outward like fireworks. Even the squat, ugly orb that held the princess's soul dropped to the ground, cracking as it hit the stone floor. But instead of disappearing, the soul dust made its way back to the princess's inert body. The last orb to break was the masterpiece over the war chief's fire. All in the chamber looked up as it rumbled and shook with a force of an earthquake. The strands of the pet soul flew out together, creating a firestorm like nothing any of them had ever seen. It was tragic, beautiful, and devastating. The war chief roared as the light of a hundred suns flared before his throne. Then a multitude of light ribbons whisked their way through the air towards Krell's workshop. Krell's heart, his spirit, was gone. He did not see the dark sand enter the princess's body, nor the brilliant filament that flew through the air into the workshop only moments later. No one heard the human's voice as it groaned, and no one saw the body rise, then release the now-conscious warrior woman strapped to the table. Krell did not see the human pet staggering towards him, naked, disoriented, and armed with his ceremonial knife. He did not feel it when the human cut his throat. He also did not have the consciousness to be grateful that the pet, too, saw no reason to be cruel. Thank you, India. I hope you enjoyed it. The supernatural and the paranormal have always fascinated her, she says. In addition to being an avid science fiction and fantasy reader, she also enjoys mysteries, thrillers, and romance. This embracing of the various strains of the weird, not that romance is all that weird, but it can be, probably explains why her writing has elements of adventure, ghosts, Elves, fairies, angels, aliens, and whatever else she can dream up. Spicy love stories, too. 
Tonight's tale, what is it? Is it fantasy, SF, horror? It has elements of all that. It's also about how alien lives can hew remarkably close to that with which we are all familiar. Ah, yes. Parents and children. The Reaver, as Stephen read it for us tonight, comes in at about 4,600 words. And it was published in the anthology Here Be Monsters, which is available on Kindle. It was expanded from a 500-word flash fiction piece India Drummond wrote for her writing adventure group back in 2010, about which you can find out more at her website and blog. That's at www.indiadrummond.com. That'll be on the Tales to Terrify homepage. You know where. And again, welcome Stephen Kilpatrick as a fully-fledged partner here in Flying the Nook from week to week. Thank you for tonight's effort, for all your work of the past, and for all that which is upcoming. You know, Stephen says that his degree in culinary arts benefits him in ways that are not necessarily apparent. He speaks of the day one concept familiar to all culinary arts students called mise en place, which is French for putting in place. In practice, he says, it means having everything you'll need for an effort at hand and in order prior to beginning execution. This, he says, has made him detail-minded for many different projects. Well, welcome to the project, Stephen. Hang on. And that will be it for the evening, fellow children of the night. I would have you be upstanding, and I would have you be off. The weather is more amenable, I suppose. It enables easy ambling through the dark and the shifting shadows of the city. A warning. There are people abroad tonight, as all nights. Some of those people are just plain folks. Some of them, though, some of them are monsters. You read about them in the papers. You see them on the news. It can be easy to tell monsters from just plain folks, but it can also be impossible at times. Charlie had those eyes. So did Gacy. So, well, you can't always see eyes out there in the dark, can you? So, amble easy, but get yourselves home and into bed, where you can be sure of sleep and, of course, of pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.